0: I hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Ah, well, it's great, to, uh, it's great to be here with you guys tonight. Um, I am really looking forward to sharing with you as we finish out the series that we've been doing called It's Not the End of the World. And uh, man, hasn't this been a great series? Uh, A few weeks back, Jaunty shared beautifully about what the end times reveal about Jesus, and then Warren brought some great perspective on some of the events that are going to happen leading up to the return of Christ, and he also uh, gave some perspective on how to avoid uh, believing certain things that get you made fun of on late night talk shows, uh, which is something that I spend a lot of time trying to avoid myself. Uh, and then uh, last week, John explored the question, what happens after you die? And he did a great job showing us what that looks like, both for the non-believer as well as for the believer. And I especially loved that imagery of, of the boat being pulled into shore and just how Jesus pulls our lives into the shores of heaven as well. Which brings us to the topic of tonight's message As we finish out this series, the last thing that I want to explore with you is the very end of God's story. And as we do, it is my hope that you will see that the end of the story really isn't the end of the world after all, but rather the beginning of its greatest chapter yet. Before we do that, let's just take a moment to pray. So, Lord, we bring ourselves before you tonight, Lord, in all of our uh, tiredness and all of our uh, strength, in all of the things that we've carried with us into this space. And, Lord, we just want to say that this is a set-apart and a holy sanctuary for you. And, Lord, we, uh, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to speak to us uh, as we open your word, as we look at the, this most sacred part of your story. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us fresh eyes to see things that we couldn't see before and ears to hear. Uh, Lord, would you cause your word to go deep within our hearts. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Anyone in here ever heard of spring break? It's kind of a big deal back in, uh, back in America. And It's a time where students around the country get a week off from their classes and oftentimes those students, since it's springtime, uh, make their way into the warmer latitudes of some of the southern states. And they get out there and, and, you know, they're just looking to blow off some steam, to relax and maybe to smash the occasional window after having a few too many drinks. Uh, now, I was never a part of that window smashing scene. Uh, But there was a church youth group in my hometown that would take a trip down to Florida every year for spring break And it was kind of a big deal Now I didn't grow up as a church kid, so I didn't really know what church kids did on church trips Uh, But shortly after I joined the youth group a few people invited me to come along and I didn't really know Anyone and and I didn't really know what they would do on a trip like that So I wasn't really sure if I would have any fun if I went along Plus, they had a rule that you could only come on the trip if you memorized a whole bunch of Bible verses and you also had to survive a 30-hour bus ride down to the state of Florida. So because I didn't know what to expect, I was a bit worried that I'd be stuck down there for a whole week doing who knows what with who knows what people and having a miserable time. So I chose not to go to Florida that year. But then something funny happened in the weeks, and the months, after these guys got from this trip down to Florida. You see, they started uploading some of their pictures to Facebook of sunny skies, white sand beaches, with palm trees swaying gently in the breeze. And I would hear people who went on the trip talk about how beautiful the sunsets were, and they would tearfully tell stories of how God so impacted them over the course of the week. And how they would all sort of laugh as they remembered that time that David tried to kiss a lizard and got bit on the nose instead. And over time, I realized that I was starting to feel like I had missed out on something that was pretty amazing. And so when February rolled around the following year and they started talking about the next Florida trip, well, I was ready to sign up the moment the registration opened. Why? Well before, I didn't really know anything about the trip to Florida, so it was hard for me to get excited about it or to even want to go. But now, I had this mental picture of what the Florida trip could be like. Through the stories and the pictures of the people who had gone before me, I could imagine what it would be like to sit around the campfire and sing worship songs under the light of the stars. I could imagine what it would be like to feel the warm sand squeak beneath my feet as I walked on the beach. And I could see that those who had gone on this trip before had come away with new and with some deeper friendships. And heck, I wanted that too. So getting more understanding of what the Florida trip would be like convinced me that it would be a lot of fun to go. And that was what motivated me to memorize a million and one Bible verses and to endure the 30 hour bus ride, which by the way, we broke down twice uh, on the way to Florida. And I could endure those things because now I can imagine what was awaiting me on the other side of those things. And that was true about my trip to Florida, but I think it's also true when it comes to the subject of heaven and eternity. I believe there's a lot of value in simply getting more understanding of what is awaiting us as followers of Jesus after this life. If for nothing more, then it helps us to be able to better imagine what it will be like Which will, in turn, motivate us to rise to the challenges and the difficulties that we face in this life, because we know what is waiting for us on the other side. So in the previous weeks of the series, we focused on some of the events leading up to and then sort of the actual return of Jesus. But tonight, my hope is to equip you with some more understanding of what the Bible tells us will happen sort of after Jesus returns. And to do that, I'm going to walk you through an overview timeline that covers what happens from the moment Jesus returns and do some exploring of what lays beyond that point. Now, this timeline is built upon a number of scriptures from across the Old and the New Testaments, and I'll be pulling on some of these various scriptures to paint a picture of these events that these scriptures seem to be collectively describing. Now, because this timeline is an overview, I won't necessarily have time to get into everything in detail, but that's why I've included the Scripture references, which you'll see in your sermon notes on that timeline, Um, and I'll also have them up on screen behind me so that you can do a little bit of exploring for yourself if you want. Now, before we get into it tonight, I need to offer a little disclaimer. There are a lot of different perspectives from a lot of very smart people uh, on the passages that we are covering tonight and sort of how they ought to be interpreted. And while I will share tonight to the best of what I believe the Scriptures are trying to communicate about this subject, I myself am still on the journey of understanding it and I might get some things right, man, I might get some things wrong. But I hope that either way, that just talking about it tonight will spark a fresh longing in you for the hope that awaits you in eternity, and that that longing will motivate you to love Christ more and to love others more, because it certainly has for me. So without further ado, let's get amongst it. So we'll just start briefly in our timeline with where we are right now, which is the present age. Now, I should clarify that I am not a dispensationalist. Uh, But that said, when I say present age, I'm just talking about this unique window of history that we are in, where Jesus has come for the first time, but has not yet come for the second time. So what happens in the present age? Well, the first thing that happens is the Great Commission is happening. So. This is the mission that Jesus gave the church to make disciples of all nations. It's the the mission that is still unfolding in the world today. In the present age, also, both good and evil are growing together until they reach full maturity. And what that means is that as the kingdom of God advances and gets brighter in the world, I believe that also the darkness of the world will continue to get darker. Now, the clearest picture of this truth is the uh, parable that Jesus told of the wheat and the tares, which you can take a look at in Matthew chapter 13, but it's one of the few parables that Jesus actually interprets for his disciples and tells them actually this is connected to what's going to happen at the end of the age. I also believe that the Bible indicates that this present age is going to culminate in a time of great trouble that is unparalleled and unequaled to any time before it in history and that this time of great trouble will occur just before Jesus returns. So this time of great trouble will come to its climax, and then just when it seems like the darkness is going to win, the heavens will open, and Jesus will return. Now, like Warren talked about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus will come on the clouds with power and with glory, and it's going to be very obvious to every living soul Who is drawing breath on this earth that Jesus is coming in the sky in the way you simply cannot fail to notice a large earthquake or a lightning strike that happens right next to you in that same way the attention of everyone on earth will immediately be fixated upon the rumble and the brightness of Jesus coming in the sky now here's where it gets really good for you and I you see at this point when Jesus comes back in the sky all believers, both dead and alive from all of history up until this point, are resurrected and are given new and glorified bodies. Now, I believe this is the event often referred to as the rapture or the first resurrection, as it's called in Scripture. In Matthew 24, verse 30, it says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect that's the church from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other and then in 1st Thessalonians 4 verse 16 it says for the lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of an archangel with the trumpet call of god <laughs> And the dead in Christ will rise first. Hopefully it sounds better than that, eh? (sighs) After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then I love this bit. So we will be with the Lord forever. So if you are a follower of Jesus here tonight, It is pretty much guaranteed that at some point in the future, you will either be alive to hear that trumpet sound, or you will be awakened from death into a new body by its sound. According to the scriptures, that new body will be free of disease, sickness, and sin, and better yet, it will never die. And that is an incredible promise that should fill us with incredible hope. Moving on in our timeline, when Jesus comes back, he will be coming back to rule as king over the whole earth. And I believe that scripture is clear that at this point, all wicked who refuse to submit to Jesus' lordship, who are on the earth at this time, will be put to death, which is pretty intense. Scripture tells us Jesus himself will declare war upon those who have set themselves against him. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war." Now, this passage goes on to describe Jesus as slaying the wicked kings of the earth. It's the same uh, scenario that's talked about in like Psalm two. And the armies that have gathered against him, he'll be fighting against them as well. And there's a number of passages from across the Old and the New Testament that all seem to describe this same event. And it is pretty intense. It also tells us that Jesus will judge the whole earth and separate the righteous from the wicked. Sorry, two seconds. My notes are jumping all over the place. Then Matthew 25 tells us in verse 31, it says, "'When the Son of Man comes in His glory "'and all the angels with Him, "'then He will sit on His glorious throne.'" Before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In the same passage, jump down to verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then jump down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this is a pretty intense moment of history, but it reminded me of something I've read concerning the US uh, Civil War that happened in the 1860s. And when the US Civil War ended, it was clear that the Southern states had lost, and at that time President Abraham Lincoln offered something pretty generous. He proclaimed that those who had fought on the side of the Confederacy would be granted amnesty for their rebellion on the condition that they were willing to repledge their allegiance to the government of the United States. And so it was a time where after years of fighting, the government of the Confederate States was transitioning to this new government And because of this, everyone coming under the new government had a choice to make. If they agreed to follow the new leadership, they would be forgiven of everything. And they would be invited as full citizens with full rights to be a part of that new uh, government. But if they chose to continue to rebel, then at some point they would face the full repercussions of that rebellion. And they would become enemies of the state. And so, in a similar way, I believe this last chance for amnesty is essentially what will happen when Jesus returns. He'll be bringing this new government to the earth, and everyone who lives on the earth is going to have to decide where their loyalties lie. And this isn't always the most comfortable truth to talk about concerning Jesus. But I believe that the degree to which this truth offends us is the degree to which we doubt that God is well and truly good. Now at this point in our timeline, the book of Revelation tells us that Satan is going to be imprisoned in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. See you later, devil. And so that wraps up the events that are all going to occur in sort of a quick succession right around the time that Jesus returns. So his return marks the end of our present age, but not the end of our world. Instead, his return marks the beginning of its greatest chapter yet. So what happens next when Jesus is crowned king over all the earth? Well, Revelation 20 tells us that Jesus will reign as king from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And we who are the believers who have been resurrected at that trumpet blast are going to reign and co-govern the earth with him in this time. When Jesus becomes king, it will mark the start of what many refer to as the millennial kingdom. And I know what you're thinking that this, this is. It's called the millennial kingdom because it lasts for a thousand years. Now, again, some very smart people interpret this as being a symbolic uh, period of time, that it's not necessarily a thousand years. But in my opinion, and in the opinion of some others, uh, this is a literal one thousand year period of time that will happen on the earth in the future. So, what will life look like during this thousand years when the government is run not by a tyrant and not by a president, but by none other than God Himself in the flesh. Well, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 17. Now, this is a prophecy that many scholars believe is describing this period of time, this millennial kingdom, because it uses the language of the new heavens and the new earth but it has a few interesting parts that make it seem like the world isn't quite fully restored yet like it will be after the millennial kingdom. So let's take a look. Take a look at verse 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, And her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they even call, I will answer them. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So an interesting picture. It's similar in some ways to what life looks like now, but there's some interesting parts that are different. So in Jesus' millennial kingdom, in many ways, life is going to carry on as it has before. People are going to build, and they're going to live in houses. They're going to plant vineyards, and they'll be able to taste the sweetness of the wine from those vineyards. And yet, in some ways, this passage seems to describe a world that has also dramatically changed from how it currently is. Because I don't know about you, but I haven't seen any lions eating straw recently, Although, to be fair, the meat-eating kind aren't really common around here either. But interestingly, this passage seems to indicate that although lifespans will be much longer than they are now, it's actually kind of interesting that there would be deaths and births at all. Because presumably, this is not the resurrected believers who will be starting families and dying, Because Jesus told the Pharisees that in the resurrection, people would not be given in marriage, and you also wouldn't expect people who have already been resurrected to die a second time. So that's interesting. It begs the question, who are these people who consider dying at 100 years old to be like the dying of somebody who's a child? Well, some scholars have inferred that this means there will be a group of people who neither are resurrected at Jesus' return, nor are they put to death. These people are the most natural explanation of the fact that scripture seems to show that some of these natural processes will continue, though they will be enhanced in many different ways. So that's going to include births, Deaths, marriages, and it even seems to suggest people choosing to sin. So perhaps this group of people are the ones who choose to follow Jesus after he returns. And perhaps they're granted amnesty and allowed to continue living on the earth. But that's just a a possible theory. But if you want to hear some more of my thoughts about this group of people, come have a chat with me. After the service, we won't go too much more into it uh, for time's sake. But the thing that you should take away from all of this is that during this time of the Millennial Kingdom, the earth will be restored over time to begin to resemble those conditions that were found in the Garden of Eden. And so this is going to include the abundance of resources, restored animal, and extended lifetimes of those who are living on the earth. Next, let's take a quick look at what comes after the Millennial Kingdom ends. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that after the thousand years of the Millennial Kingdom, that Satan will be released from the bottomless pit and will deceive many multitudes into joining an army to rise up against Jesus. Now, the question is, who would join this army after a thousand years of Jesus leading on the earth? Because it's probably not the resurrected believers who have new bodies that are without sin. Most likely, again, it's the children and the people of this group who are still mortal during the millennial kingdom who will see many of their own join Satan at this time. Now, the fact that this happens while Jesus is physically reigning as king on the earth I think finally will put to to rest the age-old myth that people will love and serve God if He would simply show Himself to them. Because the truth is, this shows us that even in the most ideal conditions in human history, many will still choose to rebel and go their own way. And unfortunately for them, in what is perhaps one of the most anticlimactic battle scenes in all of history, Revelation 20 says this army will gather together and they will march on Jerusalem and that fire will come down from heaven and destroy them all in seconds. After that, Satan, that great tempter of old, will be cast once and for all into the lake of fire. And to that I say good riddance and don't let the door hit you on your way out. After this, all who have then ever died are resurrected to life for what we call the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, this is except for the resurrected believers like you and I, who were actually raised a thousand years prior to this at this point. And this judgment is the final judgment of all time, and it includes the wicked from all of history and the righteous who have lived and died during the Millennial Kingdom. Those not listed, Revelation says, in the book of life are thrown into a burning lake of fire with no hope of ever coming out. Very intense passage. Finally, after all peoples have received their judgment, it comes time for the last and the greatest of humans, uh, humanity's enemies to be defeated. Revelation 20 tells us that at this point, death itself is picked up and thrown into the lake of fire. And that is the last step in God's plan for defeating death, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive So now we come to the last part of our timeline, which is the eternal kingdom. Revelation 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, With all evil finally destroyed, the time has come for the happily ever after of God's story. At this time, God will fully restore the heavens and the earth. A new Jerusalem, a new city for the people of God, will come down to rest upon the earth, and from out of that city the Father will come down in person to rule and reign upon the earth. No more shall there ever again be hardship, suffering, or death. The new Jerusalem will be the capital city of a glorious kingdom whose radiance will never end. In the end, what was lost in the garden will be recovered in the eternal kingdom, when the dwelling place of God shall return to the place where it has always truly belonged, with us. The end of the story really isn't the end of the world, but rather the beginning of its greatest chapter yet. Would you guys stand with me? Why did we decide to do a series on the end times? It's because we wanted to give some understanding of what awaits you and I and all of humanity at the end of the story. And just as getting some understanding of the sandy beaches of the Florida trip gave me the motivation that I needed to get there, it's our hope that by exploring this topic that we have been equipping you with the motivation that you need to face up to the challenges that you have in this life. And for some of you, what I've shared tonight might be a review of something that you've heard before, and for others of you it might be the first time you've ever heard uh, this laid out that way. And whether you agree with everything that I've shared tonight or whether you don't, uh, my invitation for you tonight is to go on your own journey of understanding the end times. As you grow in your understanding of this beautiful and sacred part of God's story, it's my prayer that you will find the same hope that has so sustained me and so sustained the countless saints throughout history as you search out the treasures contained within the pages of this story. The hope of today is anchored in the promise of forever. So Lord God, tonight, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we've taken this overview look uh, at at this important part of your story, that Lord, for us, that it would just be the seeds of the beginning of a journey. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't shy back from this topic just because it's challenging and just because it's difficult to get our heads around. But I pray that we would trust that the God that we see described in the pages of the book of Revelation and in the prophets and across the other parts of the Bible, that we would have confidence that that God is the same good God that we know. Lord, I pray that as we uh, go on this journey of understanding that we would see the goodness of your unfolding plan for humanity, and that we would see our small part to play in that story. Lord God, we thank you for the plan that you have to redeem humanity, and that that plan is unfolding even now. And Lord, as we sing tonight, Lord, we wanna turn our attention to the King of Kings, the one who is going to reign on the earth forever and ever with us. Lord, we see him in part now, but I pray that you would help the eyes of our heart to uh, see him afresh. And Lord, to be filled with expectant longing and expectant hope for that beautiful day when he appears again. Lord, we thank you tonight. And we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.